Um, we'll get there in a minute if you have a Bible, Luke 9, uh, but no need to worry about it too much for now. Uh, we'll get there in a few minutes. Uh, I think it was about three years ago, my wife had this idea for Christmas that each of us in the family would make something for the other people in the family. That would be our gift to them. Like we would, like, I'm, I don't do crafts, but that's essentially what it was. It was like, we're going to do crafts this year. And uh, so I was going to lose from the start because, I mean, literally I spent three hours at uh, the container store just trying to find something, you know, that I could put something in. And I ended up buying like a box and I put, uh, I wrote her, a, I wrote my wife a book just by hand and it was terrible. Like it was just like I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't function doing this. And I knew, and the, I think what made it worse was I knew that they were going to deliver something really cool and I was going give, to give them this like duct taped piece of junk and uh, there you go. But um, one, of, one of the gifts that I got was this green box. And um, when I got it, I was like, wow, what is it? You know, like it's, a, it's like a 1940s lunchbox. You know, you see like the, the steel workers, they, they pop it open and eat their soup. But, uh, or not. Okay, so I get this box and it's been painted. I think uh, Alden, my son, painted it. And I was like, that's, that's cool. What is it? And, and, and my wife said, oh, this is to keep all of your concert tickets in. Now, now you just sort of whatever, but like that's true love right there. Because I have so many concert tickets from the years, and they were everywhere. They were in drawers. They were, in, they were as bookmarks. They, they used for all sorts of stuff. So I got this box, and it enabled me to put all of my concert tickets in here. And there are still some missing. I have to find them, but can I show you a couple of them here? Um, all right, so there also are random things in here, like there's this. Let me just sort of tell you the story behind this. I had a part-time, uh, when I was in college, I had this part-time youth ministry, went to school in Cincinnati, drove to Louisville every Friday night, and stayed through Sunday night to work with this little church. Very small, four kids on Easter. It was a really small church. We all had churches like that in school. It was just a way to to do ministry, to learn, to kind of get practice, you know, to to be on the field as you're learning. Uh, And for some reason, I felt it was necessary, even though I basically wasn't doing a whole lot, to have business cards. And so as a student in college, I designed my own business card and had them printed somewhere. And who knows, I forget what this cost, but it was probably like three weeks worth of pay to have all these business cards printed, you know, and they only come in sets of a million. So it was like, to this day, there are probably a lot of these laying around, but for some reason, that's in here as well. Um, so I've got this. Any Indigo Girls fans? Don't want to admit that. So here's the deal. I went to Shamrock High School in Decatur, Georgia. Yeah, that's where I grew up in Decatur. I'm a Decatur kid, although it wasn't a cool place back then. Um, it was just kind of the edge of town. People drove trucks, had accents, wore boots. It really wasn't like it is now. Um, so if you think for a moment, oh, that's, you grew up in a really cool place, I didn't. Um, but the high school I went to was the same high school that the Indigo Girls went to. And, um, and the younger brother of Amy Ray, Larry, uh, used to practice with us on the cross-country team. And uh, so I got to know him. Um, and anyway, through him and through just the, the fact that they graduated from a high school, they were always at our school handing out tickets to teachers uh, that they had known and former teachers that they had had. Uh, for upcoming shows and whatever. So we sort of gotten used to that, and they really weren't, like, huge at, the, at that moment, but we knew that it was, it was going to be that way at some point. So we would always sort of bum tickets off of them, like, hey, we'd love to come see you, which we did. 
And there was this one day that I uh, knew that Amy was going to come by, or I had heard she was in the school, and I, I don't remember which one, but it, it, was, it was creeping down the hall, like, she's here, she's here. And so I told the teacher, I was like, I've got to go here, but if she comes in here, which I knew she would, uh, I need a ticket for tonight's gig at Emory University. They were playing at something there. So I come back, and there's this note for me that says, Derek, see you at the show, Amy Ray. So I have this, like, handwritten note from her, and this is literally the ticket. Like, I walked into the place, and it was like, (laughs) you know, it was great. So I kept that. It's pretty awesome. Um, See what else I got here. This is sort of the holy grail in the box. This is the Joshua Tree Tour U2 ticket from 1987. Mm. Yeah. It is so trash that it is, I have it sealed in scotch tape. Like, it just, it's been through so much. It was a bookmark for years, but uh, yeah. Oh, you can get free large fries at Hardee's, and this offer is good through February 28, 1988. So, um, which is probably how long they keep them there. Um, I've got another U2 360 tour ticket, about three Black Crows tickets, anybody? I just got tickets to their show uh, coming up in uh, April, so it's the third farewell tour I've seen them play, (laughs) but whatever, so taking my son to that one, uh, be his first one. A friend of mine here plays in a band called The Higher Choir, and uh, anybody? Ah. (laughs) It's really good. Well, they played a show at the, the Buckhead Theater, which I still call the Roxy. I don't know if you've uh, been around that long. But uh, they played there, and they were opening for Soul Asylum. So if you're a 90s kid, I mean, I wasn't into Soul Asylum, but I was like, I'll come see your band because I like the band. And so I got a Soul Asylum, Soul Asylum ticket here. So Runaway Train, there you go. Um, <laughs> right out the door. No one got that. You can Google it later. Oh, oh, this is it. This is the one right here. Hang on. So this is, these are the worst kinds of tickets, you know. But uh, this was last year, uh, last August. I got to see the Allman Brothers Band, right? Now, here's the thing. Like, I, I've always loved them, and I listened to them in college, and no one in Cincinnati understood that. Like, what is this music? What is this sort of, what is that sound? Um, I'm like, that is, that's our sound. That's like, we're from Georgia. That's our sound. Um, and I just offended the whole room, but Whatever. So uh, a friend of mine here at the church uh, and his son and I, we went and saw this. And it was one of those things where I was like, I was standing there and his son's in eighth grade at the time. And I looked over to him and I said, there are just not a lot of eighth graders that can say, you've seen the Allman Brothers man. And uh, Derek Trucks played guitar with him that night. So I was like, this is amazing. And, um, and I'm losing all of you, but just hang with me. But I kind of left. I was like, man, I can die now. Like, or they could die now. I don't know. But like... <laughs> I've seen them. I've seen them live, you know, and like uh, there's just, it was just so cool. I don't know if you have a a box like this or any sort of thing that you uh, keep around just to hold on to memories, like things that really were important to you or uh, just really, you know, kind of cool experiences. Uh, And I think that's a good thing. I think it's, it's, it's good to have those uh, containers that we can go back to and just look at and, and remember uh, some of the cool stuff that uh, we've been through. We're very good as a culture at capturing moments that we feel uh, are important. Uh, let me show you this picture of our youth pastor. This is Kyle. Uh, this is about two weeks after his ordination, and uh, he's doing a wedding. Uh, remember this, Kyle? We're not quite sure if the wedding was legal. <laughs> and let me just, uh, and he can back me up on this, let me just say this, 
Every pastor goes through this same situation where someone comes in off the street and says, will you do our wedding? And you don't know them. Am am I telling the truth so far? You have no idea who these people are. Uh, The wife did not speak. And the husband spoke and said, we need to get married quickly. And so it's like uh, we're all smiling at Kyle like, this is yours, man. This is your... This is your time. This is your time to uh, perform an illegal wedding. And um, (laughs) so, you know, whatever it was, a few weeks later, they came up here, and Kyle did the wedding on the stage. No one here, just those two, again, and uh, did the wedding here. And Lindsay and I are back here in the office. This is the office back here, or the shop, as we call it, because we make things back there. And uh, all the beautiful things that you experience, we make those back there. And uh, we're back there, and we're like, we've got to get a picture of this, like, whatever this is, you know. So we come out, and we get this picture of uh, Kyle. So that's Kyle's first wedding. Give it up for Kyle. It's a good job. He looks good, doesn't he? He looks, uh, he's got the, I try. I don't really, I don't care. So Uh, next slide. This is David Crowder, and uh, he's an odd-looking guy. Uh, we sing a lot of his songs in here, so he's a, he's a worship leader, uh, written some great songs. He lives here in Atlanta now, uh, and my son is quite a fan. Uh, next slide. This particular piece of paper or picture was ripped out of a magazine eight years ago, and it has been stuck to his door ever since. And I've tried to throw it away. It's just not going anywhere. It's still in our house. Uh, he's always been a fan, and he takes guitar at, uh, at Maple Guitars around the corner, and we were, one day we were driving, uh, I was driving him to lessons, and we were listening to Crowder on the way, and we pull into the shop, he runs in, and he runs right past David Crowder. Doesn't even see him, and you can't miss him, he's six foot five, he looks like this, and he's at the counter buying some gear. Now the guys that work at the guitar shop, they don't know who he is, but I know who he is. So I run back to get Alden, and I was like, come see who's at the counter. And he comes around the corner, and he looks at him, and he's like, you know that feeling like you're like, you, you see a famous person for the first time? And uh, so the guys that work at the shop are like, is this guy famous? Like, to me. And uh, I said, well, like, well, in our world, he's, so no, he's not famous at all. So, uh, <laughs> so my friend Keith, who works there, is like, Alden, go go talk to him. Like go, but he won't move. Like Alden's just sitting there. He won't. He won't. He's not going to go talk to him. And it's like five minutes of like frozen Alden. And um, so finally I'm holding baby Alex in one hand and there's Alden and I'm talking to Keith and Crowder's got his back turned. He's at the counter. So I finally say, um, Mr. Crowder, like who says that? Like, <laughs> does he look like a guy you would say Mr. Uh, so Mr. Crowder, and he turns around and goes, yep. You know, and I uh, said, this is my son, and he's a fan, but he just won't talk to you. And uh, <laughs> so here's the coolest part, though. He walked over to my son, and he talked to him for like five or ten minutes. And like, hey, what are you doing here? Well, I take lessons. That's really cool. How long have you taken lessons? About two years at that point. That's really cool. And then he, he encouraged him, and he was just like, I never took lessons. This is a really cool thing you're taking lessons. I mean, like, God sent Crowder to the store to this day because at that point in my son's guitar playing, it had been kind of a struggle. Like I'm always like pushing into practice and he would practice or he would, and every guitar teacher, if they're worth anything, they know you haven't practiced because you're worse than you were last week, right? When you come back for lessons. And so 
uh, he encouraged him and was like, man, keep playing. That's really cool. And shook his hand and high-fived and whatever. And then, the, and then it was over. And then my son went to, to practice, and I went back to the rehearsal hall and just sat on the bench. And then it hit me as I sat down, like, I never captured the moment. I didn't tweet it. I didn't Facebook it. I didn't Instagram it. I didn't even like, hey, can you take a picture of all of us together? It just came and went, and it was over. And all I have is the story, you know, to share, and the witnesses within the guitar shop, if I had to pull them in here, not that I would have to, and say, please tell them that we saw each other there that day with the person and the thing and the place. But it's just sort of a, I didn't, I wasn't able to capture it. So, but the cool thing is, you kind of walk away from a thing like that, and all these concerts represented in that box, or any experience where it's just really cool, you know, you were just so glad to be there, and you kind of walk away, and you're like, I'm so glad I got to experience that. Like, it was really, really cool to be there. I don't know if you have moments like that, whether it was a, your wedding, hopefully, you could say that about your wedding, um, or, you know, the birth of a child, or uh, just something in a relationship that just really moved to another level and it's exciting or something about a job thing or whatever. Like there's always these things where we say it was really good to be in this place at this point in this time. And that is at the heart of our story today uh, in Luke chapter 9. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but it's called, uh, not the Bible doesn't call it this, we just call it this. It's called the Transfiguration Story which the only other time I heard that word was uh, from Professor McGonagall and Harry Potter saying, no transfiguration spells or you'll have to leave. Uh, So that's the only other time I've ever heard it. It's not a word that sort of comes out of Scripture. It's just what we call it. But it does make sense. There's something that happens to Jesus that the figure of Jesus like transforms. It's really more of a transformation story. The Bible actually just uses the word appearance or like uh, there was an alteration in Jesus. So it's like from the go, this is a very weird, weird story. Uh, but it's, got, it's loaded with stuff that we can um, really take a hold of. And I want to walk us through this today. And let me say this as a setup. This really is going to push us down into uh, a place uh, next Sunday, uh, for next Sunday, because we're starting the seven-week teaching series starting next Sunday that will take us all the way to Easter Sunday. And of course, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about what it really means to follow him and what it really means to be in a relationship with him. In fact, the best question about the upcoming series uh, that you can ask and hopefully find some uh, answers over the next seven weeks is, uh, what what am I really getting into if I follow Jesus? Like, that's the question that we're going to lay out each and every week. And uh, seven times in the book of John, Jesus says things that begin with the two words, I am. And then he'll drop this metaphorical statement and a picture of who he is. And we're just going to look at all seven of those. We end, of course, on Easter Sunday with I am the resurrection. See how we did that? And uh, I am the resurrection and the life. So it moves that way. But what's interesting is that this particular story, this transfiguration story, all around the world today, churches in tradition, have always circled up around this story the week before the Lent season that takes us to Easter begins. It's a way of putting us, and you'll see this in a moment, it's a mountaintop story for three disciples. And it takes us to that place, and we get to really experience, at least reading through it, what they got to experience or hear about their experience. And then from there, 
the whole image is that they come back down off the mountain or down the hill back into everyday life. What's very interesting, and we'll get into the story in just a second, sorry, is that all three of the, you know, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this story, and if you put them side by side, it's pretty much verbatim. And if you're a Bible student, that's always an indicator that this is a really, really important thing. Um, some stories only appear in one of the four writings, but if they're in three and you put them back to back and they're all the same, something is going on. And the other piece of this is that in all three accounts, the same story follows this story. The same story trails this story. The Gospels really aren't written in order. That wasn't important to an ancient writer. Sequence didn't matter. It was groupings of themes and pictures that they wanted to send across uh, to us. And in all three accounts of this transfiguration story, there's a story of the disciples back down the hill with Jesus trying to heal this young boy who's tormented mentally and emotionally, and they can't do it. They've just come off this mountaintop experience with Jesus, and they can't do it. And it frustrates them. They're back in the valley, and then Jesus, of course, has to heal him. And so the placement of that follow-up story to this story is really more important than you know. It's, it says something about what it's really like to live in the world and yet have one foot in the kingdom of heaven and one on the earth, and it's really frustrating. And this story captures so much of that. And I want you to see a couple things uh, as we move through it. Look at verses 29 and 30, and I think they'll be on the screen uh, for you as we move through this. And while he was praying, this is Jesus, the appearance of his face, what? Changed. This is bizarre, from the go. Let's just all agree that it's weird. Something about his face changed. And his clothes became dazzling white. Now there's all sorts of connections going on. If you know much about the Moses story, Moses went up to the mountain to converse with God, to rewrite the law, to bring it back down. And when he came down off the mountain, the scriptures say that his face was glowing, but he didn't know that, which is really sort of funny, you know. And everybody was kind of running from him. And he's like, where are you going? And he calls them back. They're freaked out because his face is glowing. But he doesn't know this is happening. But it's because he's been in the presence of God, like nobody else. And so there's this little bit of a connection there. They're on the mountaintop. Jesus is praying. And then his face transforms and his clothes are dazzling white. And then suddenly it says, they, James, Peter, and John, those are the disciples with him, saw two men, and then they're named, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. So again, let's just call this what it is. This is bizarre. I mean, Moses has been dead for a long time. Elijah has been dead for a long time. And then here's Jesus talking to both of them. And you've got to start, you know, if you're, if you're a critical thinker, you're reading this story going, who's tripped out on what? What's happening? What is going on? Now, wherever you fall or come down on miracles, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really matter today because the same message can be uh, heard from the story, whether you uh, don't believe these sorts of things happen in the life of Jesus or you do. It doesn't really matter today. The same lesson comes forward, and I think we can all sort of uh, learn from it. Now, the two people that are mentioned, uh, I want to just talk about this just for a moment because it, it is important. Moses and Elijah are said to be 
talking with Jesus. And it says that they're talking with him about his what? Does it say up there? His departure. The Greek word for departure is exodus. And so this is just wrought with all sorts of symbolism and uh, meaning for us. What kind of exodus are they talking about? Well, of course, this is about uh, Jesus exiting the world. There's going to be a death and a resurrection. But exodus doesn't usually mean death in biblical language. Exodus means journey to freedom. And that journey to freedom is tough. It's divinely guided. It's divinely appointed. But it isn't easy. And there's no greater story of that than the story of the Israelites, whom Moses freed uh, through God's help, freed the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And so Moses, for the Jewish person in the days of Jesus, was the freedom fighter figure. That Moses was the man who God used to free them from slavery. But it wasn't just history for them. It was an announcement about who God is, that he does not tolerate injustice. And so he frees the people of Israel from slavery, and then he will command them to do the same for the nations around them, that they will be a light to the nations, and that they will bring justice, and that they will as well do the same things for others. And they struggled with that. They didn't always do that. In fact, Israel would find themselves throughout their history as the oppressors, that they would also become the slave drivers. But regardless of how history unfolded for the people of Israel, Moses stood as the definitive freedom figure, that through him, God freed the people of Israel. And again, for the Jewish people in the days of Jesus, hope of God's rescue in some form, particularly in the Messiah, was at an all-time high. Injustice was rampant, oppression was rampant, poverty was uh, far-reaching, and the people of God were praying for some sort of new exodus, so to speak. But Moses wasn't just the exodus person, he was the lawgiver. We always, there's a phrase in the scriptures, the law of Moses. Well, it's not really his law, it's that God spoke the law to the people of Israel through Moses. He was the person whom God used to tell the people of Israel how they are now to live in the world. And so the Ten Commandments and the other 600 and something commandments that we find in the Old Testament, these all came to the people through Moses. And so God used him to give the people a way to live. And the laws, we often mistake the laws as some sort of burden on the backs of these people, but it wasn't. It really wasn't. The law was God's way of, one, separating the people of Israel out from the rest of the nations and asking them to live to a different standard, right? And, uh, and the standard that he asked them to live to or at made a lot of noise culturally because it was very upstream. It was very upstream from the nations surrounding them. And so they would show the world in some way through the law that they were trying to live out, which was basically impossible, which was kind of part of the point. They needed to learn about grace. But they have these laws and these commandments that they, that they were to live out, and it was essentially to show the nations that this is what it means and this is what it looks like to live as God's people in God's world. Now, the other thing that Moses symbolizes is this, and maybe this doesn't cross your mind all that much, but Moses symbolizes a deep 
intimate friendship with God. He becomes a model for this. Notice what it says in Exodus 33, verse 11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a what? A friend. This is how they saw Moses, and this is what Moses did. It's really uh, exciting to read the Moses story and notice how much Moses and God converse like they are friends, and sometimes like they are frustrated friends, where Moses calls God out and says, you need to change your mind. You need to not do these things, or I'm asking you to change direction, or I need you to listen to me. There's even times where Moses reminds God of his promises like God had forgotten. And Moses becomes this friend of God in the sense that we have friends where we'll push on him. Like true friends kind of do this. And so Moses becomes this figure of what can be in our relationship with God. That we can have this connection with God that is face-to-face as a friend. That he would speak to us, that we would speak to him as a friend speaks to a friend. And so this is one of the greatest pictures of what's going on in front of James, Peter, and John. They look up and they see Moses standing there talking to Jesus, and he represents so much for them. Now the other person on the other side of Jesus is Elijah. Now we don't want to sit here too long, but Elijah is this prophet. Uh, He symbolizes all the prophets, perhaps. But he is also the last prophet mentioned in the last verse of the Old Testament. That there's this promise that Elijah would come, and then it goes silent for 400 years. Right? So there's this, uh, he's the last name that we read in the Old Testament. Now he's mentioned, of course, in uh, some of the other Old Testament writings, but we have this space between the final word of the Old Testament and the days of Jesus. And so Elijah becomes a symbol for uh, the prophetic world which is not about future telling, but about renewal and about justice and about um, calling God's people back to the way that they should be living. And so the prophets almost become a reminder of what Moses instituted. And so there's Jesus speaking to both of them. And traditionally, the presence of Moses and Elijah has always been seen as like, okay, here's Jesus with these two men, and they represent the whole of the scriptural story, the law and the prophets. And that's a, good, that's a good way to look at it. Like, here's Jesus talking to these two people that really represent the whole story. So the whole story was on the mountain, right? The whole story was in front of Peter, James, and John, and they were staring at the whole thing, and it was pretty incredible. And look at what it says next in verses 32 and the first part of 33. They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now, just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master... It is good for us to be here. Let's just say those last few words together. Master, it is good for us to be here. This is the first thing that comes out of Peter's mouth. The first thing Peter says when he sees what's going on and it's starting to die down, he says, it was good to be here. Like, the, you know, the, the other nine disciples, they missed out. It was good for us to be here. Thanks that we're your favorites, right? Thanks for the mountaintop experience. Thanks for the spiritual high. Now, I want to just sit here for a moment. I want you to let the words sink in, the words of Peter sink in. It is good for us to be here. It is good for us to be here. That's what we say when we experience 
something of a mountaintop, that it's good to be here, that we're glad that we're present for this, that we're glad that we're awake to this. And Peter voices that just like we would in some form. It's really good for us to be here. David says in Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, I don't know if your alarm went off this morning and you were like, man, I don't want to go. You know, or I'll find an evening service somewhere or whatever. Trust me, I've had those mornings too, but I, you know, I'm here. But here's David saying, when they came to me and said, it's time for us to go to the house of the Lord. He's like, I was glad about that. I was really glad to hear that. And it's really was convicting to me, you know, in prepping for today. Like, do I ever say that? Do I say that about the experiences that we have week in and week out together? Do I say that about my small group that I'm in, every Sunday night? Does everybody leave our home and say it was really good that they came over tonight? Like, do I say that? Do you say that? Do you ever leave here and say, man, it's good to be there? Or do you say, cool, that's done? Or do you recognize, are you awake to the reality of what's happening in in here? That all these different stories are colliding in one voice of worship. And do you ever say, it's really good to be there. It's really good of us to be here. Like I said, I've been on staff at four churches. One in college, which was really just a practice round. And then the very next one I was fired from, so that's not a good start. And then the third one was basically a healing place, like just a place of healing for me. And then this one, that's it. So here we are. And Mickey and I have said that if we didn't work here, if I didn't work here, we would still go here. I don't know what you were thinking I was going to say, but (laughs) we'd be, man, we'd never look back. No, we'd still go here. There's something about CCB that we love regardless. Like, we just kind of love it. Maybe it's the uncertainty. Maybe it's the messiness. Maybe it's the, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But we just are so attracted to this place. And we do, we do love it. And uh, we do say, most Sundays... It was good to be here. It was good that we were with those people. It was good to see so-and-so. It was good. And that's one of the best things I get to hear from, from you as well. It happens every week. Somebody will pull me aside or text me or call and say, I wasn't going to come today, but I'm glad that I came, and it was good to be here. And I think that if we aren't able to say that, on a regular basis. Like even just in our own private thoughts to God, like it was really good to be there. If we are not saying that in some way on a regular basis, 
We have to look at that. We have to figure out what's going on there. And Peter, it's so simple. He just looks at Jesus and says, man, that just happened. And we were here for that. And it was really good to be here. I had more to say, uh, and it really takes a turn, I, but I'm not going to go there. I think that we just should just leave it there. That I mean, there's some other things that happen. Peter wants to build houses on the mountain. The very next thing he says is, let's, let's make some houses here and just live here. You know, so Peter just basically says, like, oh, this is awesome. Forget about the people down the hill. You know, life can go on without them, right? So he just kind of wants to live in the moment. And then essentially, God says, you can't do that. you got to go back down the hill. you got to take these moments and let it spill over into the life that you live and into the world that you live. We're on these mountaintops so that we can survive the valley. And so we have these times where we come together as a church or as a small group, and we're in prayer together, and we're growing, and we're being encouraged. But that's not so that we can live there. It's so that we can have the strength, the strength to go and do life where there's no hope of that. And that Peter, uh, in his honesty, saying, man, it's good for us to be here. Let's live here. Jesus says, no, 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 no. These are a blessing for you so that you can go back down into the valley and let that spill over into the world that you inhabit. These are for you and for your survival in a world that would never imagine this to be possible. And there really is nothing more dislocated than when a Christian is talking about how awesome God is to a bunch of people who could care less. It just, it's just weird. And whatever we feel like, you know how you do like, gosh, it was good to be here. I just want to live in this moment. And then you're trying to explain that to your neighbor and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Because it's a personal thing. And so it's like you can't live in it. You have to sort of go back down the hill into the valley with the people who need the same hope. And that's essentially what Jesus teaches them in that moment. That the best way to capture the greatness of God is to let it spill over into the lives of the people around us. In other words, the best way to hold on to these moments is to let go of them. And to let them leak into our worlds. But I think maybe what we all need to leave with today is not the reality of the valley. I think we get that. But I think maybe the challenge to find the heart to say, it was good to be here. It was good to be with God's people. It was good to hear from his word. It was good to sing songs. It was just good to be here. And I think that's the challenge. Instead of just getting into the the valley, let's just sit here on the mountaintop for a moment and wrestle with whether or not we're awake to those moments. And if we're not awake to those moments, let's do some digging and figure out why is it that I mean, Jesus could stand here with Moses and Elijah, and I wouldn't recognize it. I think that's the challenge. And so we'll end it there. And I want to encourage you to 
to believe me when I say that a lot of this will come to life over the next seven Sundays. And as we climb the hill to Easter, and as we settle in on Resurrection Sunday, a lot of what you've heard today will play itself out. So just trust me in that. Uh, Be back next week for that as we begin that journey uh, together. And I just, I pray, I will pray for you this week that if uh, you are in this situation, that I will pray the words of David for you in the Psalms that somehow God will restore the joy of your salvation. I love that David prays that because that tells me that sometimes it goes away. Like, restore unto me, God, the joy of you. And so I'll be praying for you as a church in that regard. You pray for me in that regard. But I think that's the message today, that we have to find ways to say genuinely, man, it was pretty cool to be here. And if we just can't say that, then we know our next steps. We know what we need to work on. And I know what I need to work on. So let me pray, and then we will do uh, communion together. Uh, If you're new with us, uh, there are four tables in the room, uh, and the bread and the juice uh, are on each table. They're all the same. Uh, And we take the bread and we drink the juice as as a remembrance. It's a memorial. It's a reminder of the life and the death of Jesus and also the resurrection. So it's a joyous occasion while at the same time a very uh, uh, solemn reminder of, uh, of the life and the death of Christ. But right in the middle of there is this hope that lives in the communion, that as we take it, we do so in uh, not just remembrance, but in hope uh, of his return. And so I'll pray for that, and you can make your way to one of the four tables, and uh, if you want to take communion at the table, you can do that, or you can bring it back to your chair. Uh, if someone around you, Uh, is unable to go get it themselves, if you'll just take it to them, uh, for them, that would be be the right thing to do. So um, let me pray for our next few moments together, and then we'll take communion together. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for this story of three of your disciples experiencing um, something that is extraordinary, was extraordinary. Um, Thank you for the lessons that come out of it, the challenge that comes out of it that though we may never experience those same things, uh, we do experience your grace, your mercy, your word being taught, songs about you being sung, um, the, the miracle of serving one another and meeting needs that otherwise would have never been met. And God, in all of those environments, give us the strength to be awake to how good those experiences are so that we may say uh, day in and day out that it was good to be here. And God, restore to this church and to every church in this city the joy of what it means to follow you. That when we think about church, when we think about you, when we think about um, what it means to be your people, that that's a joyous thing. And that the world around us, when we come off of these mountaintops, back into the valley, that we bring that with us, that our face glows. And that maybe at first people want to run from us because it just looks weird, but that you will somehow use these moments, these 60 minutes together as a congregation, or, these, or the two hours in circles that we spend together during the week and 
You will make our faces shine. The story of your grace and mercy. So God, I just pray for the next few moments as we share in the communion together that you will move in the hearts of each person and that you will encourage us to know uh, your presence, to be awake to that, and to be joyful about that. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.